Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I'm going to read that, and uh, the text will be up on the screen if you'd like to follow along. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with, uh, with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this uh, new teaching is that, you're, that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived, in the, who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact place where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image man by, made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the whole world with uh, justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear again on this subject. And that, Paul left the council, and a few men became followers of Paul and believed. We'll unpack that in a few moments, but before we do, I'd like to just... Uh, do a little family business and share two quick things with you, uh, one that will require prayer. Uh, last night, Paul let me know that uh, he had come down with COVID. Uh, so I was at 6.30 last night, so uh, we had to make some quick changes uh, for, for this morning. Paul was scheduled to preach today, um, so obviously that wasn't going to work. So we'll pray for him. Also, many of you know our friend uh, Tom Harrison. Tom and Kathy uh, have been part of North River uh, for many years, and Tom served as one of our has served as one of our overseers. Uh, Tom found out this week uh, that he's been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and uh, and that has spread. Um, 
Uh, good news is that uh, they're, they're working to uh, come up with an aggressive treatment plan. Uh, and we uh, want to keep uh, Tom and Kathy and the girls uh, in, in our prayers and knowing that God is, is able to heal. He is the great physician. So, and I realize there are others that may not be well or ill or sick, uh, so we'll spend some time praying uh, this morning for that. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, as we turn a new year, we're thankful for the blessings and the goodness that you are in our life. We thank you for another year of your provision, of your protection, of your purpose, and of your plan. And God, we continue to trust you uh, with our life. We uh, give you our worship. We thank you for all that you do, and we acknowledge that it all, it all does come from you. And without us, we would, we would have nothing. In the same breath, God, we pray for the times that are challenging and, um, and discouraging. For those who are sick this morning in our midst that we know in our family, God, we lift them up to you and ask that you as a great physician would be about your healing work and repairing and restoring bodies in the way that you do so well. God, we lift up Paul to you and we pray that you're uh, at work in his body and healing him from COVID. And we lift up our brother Tom to you and knowing that he's got a rough journey ahead. And God, I know there are several people in this room who are uh, struggling with the news and who know him and love him and care for him. So God, I pray for, for peace today for each one of those people, for Tom, for Kathy, for the girls, for his friends, and for his family. God, we know that you are able to do miraculous things, and we trust that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that you give Tom the strength. You pray, we pray that you give him the energy. We pray for Kathy as she manages uh, the, the travel and the, the, um, the recovery that needs to happen. God, we trust you in knowing that you will uh, make good of this and you will bring a story about that we can uh, thank you and praise you for. We ask this today in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> For many years, my vacation is family has uh, my vacate my family has vacationed in Maine every summer. <laughs> we uh, we love the ocean. Uh, we found a great place to rent right on the water a few years ago, and uh, we return there every year. The main focus of our vacation is to spend as much time together as possible, preferably at the beach. Uh, last summer, we logged in four beach days. Um, it was beautiful. <laughs> Now, I'm not a big fan of swimming in the ocean, but I love the smell of the salt air, the sound of the crashing waves, and walking on the water's edge. <clears throat> if you've ever stood still at the water's edge, you will notice the waves rush onto the beach, they hold for a moment, and then they roll back in the water. And as the water retreats, it erodes the sand that's underneath the feet as it drags back into the sea. And if you stand there for a couple minutes while multiple waves come up onto the beach, you eventually need to shift your position in order to regain your footing, or you just might lose your balance and fall. Now, as I think about that experience, I see some similarities with the Christian life. As followers of Jesus, uh, we're called to be faithful and to stand firm on the truth of God's word, right? Right? 
Yet as we stand firm, everything around us, like our culture, society, issues in our world, can at times seem contrary to the teachings of Jesus. The world seems to be fast in pulling the ground that we're standing on and flowing into a wavy sea that can often leave us feeling unbalanced or or unsteady. For instance, as, as parents, we must navigate media in our culture to discern which shows or movies or music or social media is suitable and safe for our kids. Nothing is more unsettling when your kid says to you, but all my friends are doing it, why can't I? (laughs) Students often face difficult and challenging decisions in the current uh, of peer pressure or acceptance or identity when it's running contrary to where Jesus is calling them to go. As citizens, we need to think through important issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, gender identity, and immigration. How do the teachings of Jesus, the values of Jesus, shape those issues for us? In our workplace, how do we begin to engage with our colleagues and friends about faith? I often talk with people who say they know that they're called to share the gospel and they they want to, but are unsure of how to approach the issue in a way that might be heard, uh, a way that might, that might be heard or received rather than just being a talking head Jesus. A variety of issues in our world today are complex and they're politically and racially charged and, they're, and they can be divisive. So we often feel paralyzed rather than empowered to engage in making a difference for Christ. In our pluralistic society, these are not easy issues to navigate. And they often present significant challenges in our responses. If we take a culture warrior approach on these significant issues, meaning we choose to fight to stand our ground or or we completely separate ourselves from the culture, our response might be too uh, narrow or rigid and we appear out of touch with the rest of the world. Or if we take a passive approach, Maybe we think as long as it's not hurting anybody else or if you can't beat them, you can join them. We justify our passivity where we find ourselves looking more like the culture than looking more like Christ. And if we take a neutral approach, staying silent or unengaged, we end up having no impact at all. So what do we do? How do we respond What if there was a way, rather than being a cultural warrior, to being a cultural missionary? Meaning we maintain our position and still have a posture of influence. The Apostle Paul was known as the greatest cultural missionary in history. In Acts 17, we just read, he found himself engaging in a pluralistic society when he was visiting Athens. How Paul masterfully engaged the Athenian culture with grace and truth has become a model for missionaries and churches committed to reaching people far from God. And over the next few minutes, I'd like to take a look at Paul's approach in Athens and then consider with us together some implications for how we can engage our culture. 
First, a little bit about Athens, as it's always essential to understand that background. Athens was the leading city of ancient Greece, named after Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom. It was a native city of great philosophers such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Athens was a progressive city, a leader in intellectual inquiry, culture, and religion. It was like the Oxford, Cambridge, or Edinburgh, Edinburgh of our day. And with such diversity in belief and thought and culture, Athens itself was filled with various views and idols. And to try to stand on any moral or religious ground in that day was difficult. So this was likely Paul's first trip to Athens. Anything he had known about Athens, he would have known by word of mouth or from what he had read. The text tells us that Athens was different from what Paul had hoped it would be. His initial exploration of the city was disheartening. Pagan temples, statues, pillars, monuments, all pointed to many things in the world, but there was nothing that was pointing to God. And verse 16 tells us that Paul was distressed over it. Now, we cannot overlook the importance of this verse in this text. The word for distress in verse 16 refers to a response of extreme discontent, almost a sense of anger and, and grief over the idolatry of the Athenians. It was the same word that was used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible to describe God's own response to idolatry. In other words, Paul's reaction to what he witnessed in Athens was similar to what God's reaction is. And as I reflect on that uh, for, for a minute, I find myself asking several questions. How distressed am I by the things that I see in our world? How much do I care about people who are being swept away by the waves of a of a culture in that lost souls will live in eternity without Christ. As a follower of Christ, how am I actively helping to advance the kingdom with the time and resources that I have? Is God moving in me to speak up for him? Paul's response was not to retreat or to sit back and ignore what he saw, but it It raised up from within a discontent that would not keep him silent, but rather it motivated him uh, to respond to what he had seen. In that situation, Paul chose to remain faithful, to hold his position, to be bold, and to speak up regarding what he had seen and experienced rather than be wavered by it. To be faithful means to not give up. To continue to trust God despite challenges and difficulties. Faithfulness is a daily focus and recalibration of our life to reflect the will of God. One of Paul's greatest characteristics was his faithfulness. Faithful to God's call. Faithful to God's truth. Faithful to the mission and the message of the gospel. Faithful in suffering. And faithful to the heart of God for lost people. Now, while Paul was faithful to the gospel, 
and he was bold, he was ready to advance God's mission, there was also another characteristic of Paul that is revealed in this message. Paul understood the importance of being flexible. Here's what it says in verse 17. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, all well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. The entire chapter of Acts 17 reveals Paul's interaction with people in three different types of, three different contexts. Sorry, I'm going to back that up for a moment. Paul needed to remain faithful and Paul needed to remain flexible. And the entire chapter of Acts 17 reveals Paul interacted with people in three different contexts while in that region on his journey. He reasoned, he reasoned in the synagogue, he reasoned in the marketplace, and the in front of the Areopagus. In each of those contexts, Paul's approach was different. His methods changed, but his message in the process stayed the same. As that was Paul's custom, when he arrived in a city, he would often go to the synagogue and he would reason with the Jews from the scriptures. Paul's starting point with those who already knew God was in the scriptures. It was what they already knew. But in verse 3 in chapter 17, it tells us the central theme of Paul's message was always around Christ, namely his death and resurrection. Paul was faithful in that message with whomever he was reasoning with, but his approach in the other two contexts in Athens was different from his approach in the synagogue. The marketplace was the equivalent of a local town square. It was where people from community gathered for news and for information and discussion. It's where Socrates had taught there for years before. Paul didn't show up first and just go find a synagogue to preach in when he went to Athens. He took a missional approach and he set up shop right in the town square. Paul contextualized his audience and adjusted the presentation of his message in a way that Athenians could recognize and relate to. He used logic, he used rhetoric and dialogue with a question and answer format in which his hearers could interact and discuss the things Paul had said. For example, evangelism, uh, for Paul, evangelism was a process, not a one-time transaction. The process of evangelism seeks to go directly where people are, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Unchurched people need time and space and patience in order to think through and process the message of God. It's sitting across from someone in a coffee shop and asking what they know and what they think and what they believe about God. It's being willing to listen to their hurts and their habits and their hang-ups that they may, have about, uh, they may have about God. It's sharing our story of how we have come to know Christ in our own life and allowing people to ask questions and wrestle with it. It's sharing with your colleague the strengths and the hopes you found in Christ during a significant struggle in your own life as they try to pick up the pieces from a major battle 
in their life. It's providing a safe place which questions about life and faith in God can be asked without feeling judged or uncomfortable or having questions. And it's being patient with someone who pushes back, who doesn't agree with you, yet continuing to, continuing to pray that God will open the doors for a more dialogue and conversation. Initially, Paul's approach to the marketplace didn't win him any points with the people. Some had become defensive to what Paul was saying, but they weren't necessarily offended by him personally. What they could have done in this instance, in this circumstance, was to simply ignore Paul or silence his message to avoid making people uncomfortable. Or they could have just run him out of town. But because Paul was flexible in his approach in the marketplace, going there and reasoning and processing his message with people, it opened up the opportunity for Paul to share his beliefs further with the Areopagus. Here's what we read in verses 19 through 21. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. The Areopagus was responsible for the judicial and religious and moral well-being of the state. It was like the Supreme Court of our time. Yet Paul wasn't on, on trial here. They were basically just asking him to give an account of the philosophy of his religious beliefs. Walt Mueller, who's a well-known voice and author on contemporary youth culture, explains that Paul's invitation to the Areopagus was a response to what Paul was saying, but also how Paul was saying it. His position, which was the gospel, was strange to this new audience. And because of that, there was, uh, the way he engaged them made them more curious and want to know more. Paul wasn't seeking to win a popularity contest with the way that he presented, but he presented and he spoke in a way that the Athenians could relate to. Now, the desire to want to know more was most likely not a desire to learn more about the gospel here. It was an op a new opportunity to stimulate their intellectual minds with something that was new to them. They were less concerned about the truth of what Paul was saying and more about an opportunity to ponder new ideas. And that is exactly where Paul met them. Here's what it says in verse 22 and 23 again. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see you're religious. For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now you worship something that is unknown. I'm going to pro proclaim to you. Don't miss Paul's approach to the Areopagus. Paul did his homework. He was a student of the idols and the culture of Athens. He addressed their lack of understanding of an unknown God they worshipped by explaining to them how they could know and experience the true and living God. Though distressed at what he saw, it motivated him to study and to learn and to understand what he saw so that he was able to compare and contrast the Athenian culture and gospel. 
For the Epicureans in that story, their ultimate goal was pleasure. For them, it was to be free from worry, from pain and fear. Like Cheryl's, Cheryl Crow's song, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. The Epicurean belief in God was that God existed, but they had no real interest in, of, or influence in humanity. And for the Stoics, their end goal was to be self-sufficient, to be one with nature. Stoics were pantheists, meaning God was in all and all was God. And ultimately, God was the world's soul. Again, Walt Mueller points out Paul's approach in addressing the errors of both the Epicureans and Stoics and points to both groups to the one true living God in verses 24 and 25. He explains that the unknown God is the creator, the sovereign Lord of all things, who does not need humans and is independent of his order, created order, which is wholly dependent on him. Now, the last part of this passage is where things get interesting. Paul uses the culture of Athens to help his point about the resurrection. Let's look one last time at verses 26 and 28. From one man he made every nation of men that they would inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you, our own poets, have said, we are his offspring. Now, there's so much to understand in these couple verses, and again, I'll give the credit to Walt Mueller for his, his background. The first quote, in him we move and have our being, was a quote from Greek philosopher Epimenides. It was a reference to Zeus, the Greek god of sky and thunder, spoken by his son Minos. Paul uses the quote to affirm the one true God as the source of life, who is very active and involved in the affairs of the people. This was a direct challenge to the Stoic belief of pantheism. The second quote, we are his offspring, is a quote from Stoic poets and philosophers, Aratus and Cleanthes. Its original use was about Zeus as well. Paul uses this quote to explain that God is the source of, creator and source of all humanity. So do you see what Paul is doing here in Athens? While he's being faithful, he's being flexible to the point where he was able to immerse into the culture of Athens. Not to preach against it, yet not to be conformed by it, but to teach through it in order to point people to God. This is the essence of a cultural missionary. To be a cultural missionary is to be faithful to God, yet flexible, engaging with the culture so that we do not become irrelevant. What does that mean for you and me? Sure, we have a great model of the Apostle Paul, the great evangelists. What's that have to do with us? Well, we're disciples. We're followers of Christ, just as the Apostle Paul was. And God calls us to be uh, cultural missionaries. How do we do that? How do we think like Paul? 
How do we act like Paul? Let me offer three ways for us this morning. We must become students of the culture for the sake of effectively reaching those who are in our culture. What do I mean by that? We can't shut ourselves off from the culture. We have to seek in order to understand, to be able to help people understand the message of the cross for the culture. We have to identify the places where God is at work in the culture, where God is speaking, and we need to move our lives, adjust ourselves in a way that lines up where God is at work in our culture. With our kids, we have to try to understand what and why they relate to the things in the culture that they do. It may mean watching or listening to a show or a song, not to render judgment, but to understand what draws them to it. There's times where my kids growing up would play a song and I'd listen to it and I'm like, hmm. So rather than just turning it off or saying, you can't listen to that, it was an opportunity for me to ask, what does that song mean? And now all of a sudden they're like, Dad, you know what it means. You can hear the lyrics. <laughs> but it got them to start thinking and talking through what they were listening to and what they were learning. Then it was an opportunity to turn around and ask questions. Is that what you believe? How does that compare to what you believe in with Christ? We have to be learners of the culture so that we can engage the culture. Second, we must arrange people, we must engage people not where they are, but where they are in their faith and point them to Jesus. One of the things that we talk about at North River all the time is that it's not about just attracting people to our building. Come to our church on Sunday, come hear our pastor. And let him teach you what it means to know God. We need to go. We need to leave this, air, this community and be out in our local community where we can share the love of Christ in our communities. Evangelism is a messy process because it's not just this one-time tra transaction where we say to somebody, hey, this is, this is what it means to be a Christian, and they say, thank you, you're the smartest person in the world. Oftentimes, there's hurts and habits and hang-ups that people are trying to sift through. And we have to walk through the mess in order to point them to Jesus. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus came down from heaven to earth it said uh, in John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. To dwell is to pitch a tent. God could have sent a messenger. God could have sent an angel. But what did God do? He sent himself for the message and the hope of the world. And that's what we have an opportunity to do. To walk alongside people to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to dwell with them and point them to who Jesus is. Our staff and overseers participated in a church and culture conference back in September. And one of the things that we've been learning and 
uh, trying to figure out is how to engage the digital world with an online ministry. The world is moving in that direction. Uh, more and more people are online, and we're trying to figure out how do, we, how do we engage that and how do we do that well. One of the things that we're looking at is uh, the TikTok spirituality. And what that's defined as is it's an algorithm of collection of beliefs and religion of the internet. Meaning it's religion that's made up by an algorithm, what people are trending and what they're attracted to and what they think makes the most sense or what they might like. And one of the things that we, we were, we were lear- taken away from that was the idea that, wow, this is a great opportunity to engage the culture, the TikTok world. So one of the things that North River did this past fall is we launched a TikTok, a TikTok page. TikTok, sorry. TikTok page. If you're a TikToker, go to at Hope North River, and you'll be able to find uh, some opportunities where we've tried to in- put some truth into that sea of TikTok spirituality. We see it as an opportunity to speak into the lives of people who are online. Our Christmas Eve online celebration, the service that we did online, was all specifically designed around the idea of who was watching TikTok and who might be able, who needs to hear the message of hope in a different context, in a different way, in a different method that otherwise they would not experience if they were to come here on a Christmas Eve service in person. So we need to engage people not where they are. Uh, we, need, we need to engage people where they are um, and where they are in their faith and point them to Jesus. Finally, we need to continue to walk with God in order for our movement to be directed by him. There's two things that are happening when we're walking with people in a cultural missionary context. The first is is that we need to be transformed. We need to be filled. We need to know who Jesus is in our life. We need to know the truth. Not just for head knowledge, not just for information that we can uh, impart on people that we interact with, well, one of the things that people are looking for is the authenticity of a Christian. Meaning, is what they say and what they do congruent? Are they, are they living out what they truly believe? Are they different than what, other, than, than what, um, what, they, what normal people see in others? And if we're not being transformed by God's grace if we're not being transformed by God's love, then how are the people that we interact with are going to see it? So it's a process of us experiencing God's grace, being transformed, but then going out and fulfilling that great commission that Jesus called us to. The great commission was was when Jesus said, Uh, Go and make disciples. Go to the ends of the earth. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Each one of us as disciples has that call to make disciples. 
It's how the church grew over the last 2,000 years. Generation after generation, people who have embraced God in their life, who have been transformed, then extended that love and transformation that they receive from God to others. And that's how the message, the gospel, the kingdom has been spread worldwide. Friends, as we begin a new year, let us be faithful and let us be flexible in our communities, in our families, in our workplace. Let us be like Paul and walk with people and share with them the gospel and be bold enough to be flexible in order to adapt, in order that people can wrestle, ask questions, and understand what the hope that comes from the gospel truly is. That hope is living in you and with you. And God wants to use that for his glory. Let's pray. God, as we take another turn around, around the sun, we ask that you would uh, guide our steps. God, we pray for the opportunities. You know the people that are in our life that have come across us in our path. God, we ask that you would orchestrate the opportunities in which we can interact, which we can share the gospel, the hope, and the love of Christ in a way that people would know, that people would ask, they would seek, they would wrestle with that truth for themselves. God, help us to do this in a way that maintains our truth, but also reflects a posture of grace. We ask this today in your son's name.